Kyore Etefane, Namihi Tuatahi Kita Atua, Nona Mea Katoa, Namihi Tuarua, Kita Koto, Karoria Kita Atua, Ko Rematake, Tomonga, Ko Awa Karangi, Te Awa, Ko Ati Awa, Te Manafenua, Ko Nati Pakiha, Te Iwi, Ko Rosi Koko Ungoa, Tena Koto Katoa. Uh, so we're really happy to be here um, as CMS, um, so I work for the Church Missionary Society and I have, um, there's four colleagues of us, kind of four of our team here with you today, so Guy and Summer hanging around the back here, um, and also Anna who's going to be coming later in the afternoon um, to share with us. Um, and just to introduce a little bit about who CMS are, um, so many of you would have seen the movie Amazing Grace, um, and you might know the story of William Wilberforce. So basically that movie kind of shows this hero of one person kind of saving the world, as movies often do. But really Wilberforce was part of this whole evangelical revival movement that swept across England, and also part of this particular group called the Clapham Sect, which actually started out of a, a parish in, in, in the outskirts of London, this whole kind of crew of people who were just on fire for Jesus. They were a kind of missional movement and... Rosie, do you mind if I give you a mic? Yeah, please, that'd be great. Thank you. Do you want to stand or are you okay? I'm okay, just kidding. Um, so part of a missional movement and um, really they were all about um, kind of transforming the world, living into the kingdom. So they kind of no accident that the, the same movement that started, um, ended slavery in England also started this global missionary movement of people yearning to go and tell the good news of Jesus, which transforms us now and transforms people's lives. So CMS really started out of that whole movement in 1799. Um, in good kind of English tradition, it started in a pub, a group of people, <laughs> um, they really literally started in a pub. Um, and actually, slide though, I met with all the CMS directors around the world recently, and I was quite proud that on the last night, I managed to get us all to go out to a pub, and they told us, like, this is our history, we have to do it. <laughs> um, but they, yeah, they, um, so they, that kind of movement, actually, New Zealand was one of the first countries that they came to, so many of you will know that Samuel Marsden, who first preached the gospel here in New Zealand, Henry and William Williams, were all part of CMS, and Obviously that story is quite a big story in our country and um, we were at a camp last week with uh, the diocese um, kind of wrestling with that story and yeah I think that's like I don't, we don't really have time to go into that but I'm really happy to yarn about that because I think I guess there's an awareness for me as we stand as a church missionary society you know there's kind of reckoning we need to do with this story um, in our own land but also holding on to the gospel is good news and I guess one just encouraging thing for me in that space is that we have um, some partners that we are supporting in Tatotokoro and kind of Manukau region of kind of Māori friends who just love Jesus and who want to kind of rewrite that rewrite that story of let's, let's really proclaim the good news um, into our country now. Um, so how is CMS now? Um, so I guess I just started working at CMS three months ago um, as a director, which feels really exciting. And I think part of it, my own journey has been with CMS has been for the last 10 years when I, almost 10 years ago, I got sent out to Egypt and stayed there for five years um, as a CMS mission partner. So really sent out by the Anglican Church in New Zealand um, to serve the Anglican Church there. 
Um, who are we now? So we have about 40 mission partners around the world who do really diverse stuff. Um, you know, some of them do human trafficking prevention in Asia, setting up medical clinics in northern Uganda, a refugee ministry in the Middle East, um, social enterprise, church planting and evangelism, theological education. So kind of a whole range of stuff. I think a lot of our mission partners are really in that holistic mission space of serving the poor, proclaiming Christ in those places. Um, yeah, I think we'll have lots of time this weekend to talk about who we are as CMS, so maybe I'll leave it there. And um, I guess there's an invitation for us that we're really here for the whole weekend, so we're really keen to kind of chat with you um, about that. Um, so I know that you guys have been talking about um, the kingdom of God in, in your own studies, and I think I was really excited that was your theme for the camp, and that we got to come and share about that, because I think it's a real space that I've been, I've really wrestled in. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think, um, I think the reason I've wrestled is that how do we live in that tension of we know the world isn't right now, we know God's bringing his kingdom, how do we live now? And how do we kind of live into it in a way that's sustainable? Um, and I actually, after I left Egypt, I ended up going and studying in a Bible college for three years in the US. Um, and I actually wrote a thesis kind of around international development in the kingdom of God. Um, and the book that I came across in, in the midst of that was a book called The World Is Not Ours to Save, Finding the Freedom to God. And it talks about a younger generation of Christians who engage with social justice issues in a way that assume that the human condition can be fixed for our own efforts. That we're acting as if the world is ours to save. And, and there was just some questions in this book, which I was reading last night, that Christians haven't been on saving the world, make me fear for the church of 10, 20, or 30 years from now. When barring the Lord's return, the world is profoundly different than it is now, but still irretrievably broken, violent, and wicked. I wonder what will happen to us in the process. Will zealous young Christians who are sold out for Christ eventually age out of faith-based activism, leaving our radical commitments for the safety of a private, middle-class, churchianity that fits better with the demands of kids and family? Will we go the other direction and reduce a gospel-proclaiming faith to its ethical and moral components, neglecting evangelism and sanctification in favour of a social programme to which the Jesus and the church are optional at best and superfluous at worst? Will we suffer disillusionment and disappointment en masse, abandoning Christ in the process, as a passage of time relentlessly reveals to us that this will not be the generation specially equipped to solve the world's problems? So I guess this talk really comes out of my own wrestling, and I think in some ways out of my own brokenness, um, of how do we keep living into this in a way that endures, and how does this kind of vision of the kingdom and the promises of scripture, how does that kind of feed us in, in our journeys and in our, our work for God's kingdom? Um, and I guess, yeah, I really stand here as someone who I feel like has wrestled with this, has struggled with brokenness, but really has just seen Christ in my own life and um, just sees Christ as good news for our world. Um, and so about 10 years ago, um, I left Wellington. I think I was much more idealistic than I was now. Um, I am now, I read The Guardian Weekly. I bought fair trade coffee. I either bought op shop clothes or New Zealand made clothes. I biked everywhere. Uh, I got in trouble for protesting about third world debt at Parachute Music Festival. Um, I was in the listener for co owning a car. 
Uh, so I felt like I was kind of living the Wellington life. Um, <laughs> you know, it was great, and I, I was living in Stillwaters. It's really lovely to see heaps of friends here from, from those days as well. And I think for me, the kind of particularly the five years in Egypt, I guess I just got to places, got to low points where sometimes that kind of like, if only we do this, just kind of fell apart. Um, and I thought about a couple of moments, and one of them was I was, on the, I was living in Cairo, I was on the roof of my building and I was reading Lamentations, which if you haven't read it, it's a pretty dark part of scripture. But I'd read in New Zealand and been like, well, that's pretty full on. And I read it in Egypt in that situation. I thought, actually, there's heaps of truth to this and this is how I'm feeling right now. Um, so I arrived in Egypt six months before the Arab Spring started. Um, so in January 2010, um, 2011, sorry. Um, there was 18 days of protests, and um, which ended up in the president leaving. And I went to Tahrir Square the day after that happened, the day after the president left. And I've never seen so much public elation. Like it was insane. Like people were just like dancing in the whole Tahrir Square. People were cleaning up. People were like painting the Egyptian flag on trees and on the pavement. Like it was just this. People were signing T-shirts. It's just this like intense public elation and hope for the future of their country. And my friend saying to me. I've lived in this country my whole life and I've never felt like I had a say in this country. Like now I feel like I had a say. I remember seeing this little kid and the parents came up to talk to me and I and I said, um, what's his name? And they said, which his name is Freedom. Like I mean, it's just like this kind of like intense like joy. Um, and then I think over the few years, I, I lived there in quite difficult times and quite violent times and um, in a way, the situation in Egypt hasn't really changed, and like the amount of corruption, there's kind of no trust in the police, there's no trust in the court systems, all the ways that maybe we can kind of, not always to be honest, but the places that we can place our trust in New Zealand felt kind of non-existent or felt totally corrupt in Egypt. And um, there was another revolution in 2013, and they kind of got back to being under military dictatorship. So there's just a sense of, it feels like nothing much has changed. And um, my Egyptian colleague that I shared in the office, we shared a sign up on her office saying, lift up your head, you're Egyptian. And she took it down one day, you know? And it just felt like, where's our hope? Where's our hope in this? Um, there's just so much darkness happening and so much um, torture and killings that I, I couldn't see the hope anymore and I, I lost it. Um, I think also I was working in a really large Anglican, which included Ethiopia, and during the years I was there, we had kind of hundreds of thousands of refugees coming across the border from South Sudan into Western Ethiopia. Most of them identified themselves as Anglican. So we started these churches and, and these refugee camps. And so as part of my role, my role was kind of fundraising for lots of the development projects that were happening around the diocese. As part of my role, I went with the bishop and some of the priests into one of the really new refugee camps. And so a lot of these, Christian brothers and sisters had literally just arrived in the country with kind of what they were wearing and they were telling stories and the children were sick and I I was just there thinking, what do you say? What do you say in those moments? You know, the Red Cross is there, the UN is there, there's there's aid happening, but where's, where's the hope? And um, yeah, the bishop got up and spoke resurrection and it felt like those were the only words of hope that could be spoken at that time. So I came back to New Zealand in the end of 2014. Um, and I think I was just wrestling a lot with questions of how to make sense of the suffering. What's our role in all this? Um, should I just kind of give up, forget my friends, go back to normal life? 
Um, and I really got to kind of my own life crossroads and I got offered a scholarship to go study international development policy at Duke University. Put it on Facebook, like this is what I'm going to do. Felt quite successful. And then actually ended up turning it down and going to a pretty obscure um, Anglican Bible College um, in the US and wrote a thesis around international development and I guess really felt like it's quite easy to get shaped by what I would call secular liturgies, that we get shaped by particular ways of imagining the world, um, which actually don't line up with scripture. So what does it really mean to kind of live into scripture and to a biblical understanding and this and how we kind of approach issues of justice and poverty? Um, and they talked about kind of two wrong, kind of ways that we can get this understanding of the kingdom wrong. And um, there's an author called Scott McKnight who has these kind of fun ways of talking about it. One of them he calls pleated pants theology. Um, and by that he means this kind of particular view of, of Christians seeing the world is basically, well, God's going to bring his kingdom. The world's going to burn. We don't really need to do much, basically. You know, so this kind of the kingdom is a spiritually transcendent world. The world will cease when God brings his kingdom. And so then what we have to do is kind of save souls for heaven um, and the world will burn anyway. And I, I was actually talking to a colleague at CMS Africa who was saying, he actually did a thesis in a really similar area to me and he was saying that's a really, what he would call evacuation theology is quite um, prevalent in where he is serving and he really is pushing the church to, you know, to, to kind of rethink their, their theology. Because I think if you read scripture, the promise of scripture is that heaven will come to earth. The world will be re renewed and recreated to how it was created to be. Um, so when Christ returns and when the kingdom comes, the world will be renewed and restored to God's original original vision. So that, that way of thinking, um, yeah, isn't, isn't helpful and it's not a biblical way of seeing the world. Um, so that's a kind of pleated pants theology. Um, another way of seeing it, that I think is also unhelpful is a skinny jeans theology, um, <laughs> which basically is kind of an idea that humans could bring the kingdom of God in our own strength. So we might use like the language like, oh, we're bringing the kingdom. And maybe kingdom work becomes kind of anything that's done for the public good. Um, the kingdom becomes a movement towards social progress, which is kind of started by Christ, and we just kind of keep it going. Um, and I think, yeah, when we use that language of bringing the kingdom, I think we forget that it's actually solely, solely through God's initiative, initiative that the kingdom will come. So the first words in Mark's gospel um, says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. So the reason that Christ could say the kingdom of God is at hand is because he came, because God took on flesh and became human. That's the reason the kingdom came. It wasn't Anything to do with the people is Christ's presence. And again, when Christ returns is when the kingdom will fully come back. Um, so the vision of scripture is not this kind of idea of infinite human progress, but really a result of God's actions that will come from outside history. And I think in the kind of theological world, they talk about a recovery of the transcendent, particularly kind of like in the 20th century, there was a view that the world is just going to get better, there's kind of progress, enlightenment, and particularly around World War One and World War Two, you know, there's a sense of actually it doesn't look like we're really progressing as humans. Um, and so I think a key a key flaw of that kind of um, skinny jeans view is it really doesn't take into account the power of sin and death. Um, that our own hearts are broken, and we can't save ourselves, <laughs> let alone anyone else. Um, 
Because the, the kingdom is not something we can ultimately bring ourselves because of the power of the sin within, of sin within the human heart. So then, how do we how do we think of the kingdom, and and how do we think of our role? So it's kind of not a belief that we can fix all the problems of the world, and it's also not a resignation that we put our feet up and wait for Christ to return. Um, but there's a sense of we get formed in this Christian hope that that spurs us on, and I want to talk about two things, which is. One, how do we live in anticipation of the kingdom? And then how do we participate now? And I'm going to talk about that around four points. Um, so the first one is don't be a hero, getting ahead of our, our calling. And I think that I was referring to that kind of idea of we trying to take the needs of the world on our shoulders, this kind of superhero, saving the world, heroic virtues. Um, and it seems that that kind of hero model is good in movies, but in real life it actually... Heroes are often distorted figures whose outsized commitment ends up making someone else carries a cost or you carry a cost. Um, and there's kind of, if we're living in a place of grace with God, there's nothing God wants to do so much in the world that we need to neglect some part of Christ-likeness in ourselves. Um, so I think as we live, we remember that Christ is the real hero of the story. It is in and through Christ and him alone that God has saved and is saving the world. So a heroic Christian is really being a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, wholehearted and single-minded devotion to following Christ. I think my own kind of personal story is kind of a, a lessons learned in this space. Um, I think it's kind of the classic development worker thing, right? You go into a new place and you just get overwhelmed by the needs. And I think when I left Egypt, I would probably say, I was trying to save the world one funding proposal at a time. Like I felt like I came back kind of burning out. I came back to New Zealand for a couple of months before staying another year. And I remember sitting in Wellington and just my world was full. Like all the places that our diocese was serving was all in the world news and there was just so much happening. And I kind of felt responsible in a weird way. And I felt like I couldn't stop working because I felt indispensable. Um, and it's like it wasn't I needed more than just kind of a break or a holiday I think I really needed God to change my heart to realize that actually he didn't need me that I wasn't indispensable and he didn't need me to sacrifice my physical health or my mental health um, so part of my own story is the last few years is um, I really left Egypt I wanted to stay but I really burnt out like I couldn't go anymore and then for me there was also some PTSD of kind of healing that that took place because of staying Staying in a place quite a long time and not really, not really noticing how it was affecting me, but just kind of keeping going because I felt indispensable. Um, so I think I just God's just done such a beautiful work in my own life, and um, yeah, I think God's just showed me so strongly that yeah, it's not not about us going and being heroes because actually that really doesn't work, and it's really it's not for the long haul. Um, so the second part I want to talk about was kind of broken beyond repair. repair. It was getting our understanding of the world right. Um, and as I talked about, I think that kind of narratives of international development and human rights, there's kind of this underlying assumption of an idea of progress, that if we just use the right tools, if we use the right approach, the world will get better. We're kind of progressing towards something that's, that's this kind of utopian vision of the world. Um, I actually got asked by a journal to write a book review for, it's a follow-up to the book, When Helping Hurts, um, and it's a book called Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And just kind of challenging the idea of actually, do we as the West, should we go into the world? 
And, and what do we bring? Do we bring money? But do we bring this kind of view of the world that perhaps doesn't um, connect with each other as much as some of our friends in other countries mm. do? Um, or, you know, and I think our friends in the rest of, you know, the rest of the world, we can learn so much from them about their confidence and their gospel and their love for Christ. Um, so I think, yeah, the kind of ideas of development, which I think really shaped me when I was working in that world, I guess now I would question a bit more. And I think it's really easy to overestimate um, our own ability to do good. And perhaps particularly in the West, we do that more. Um, the reality is we can't fix the world. We can't fix ourselves. Um, and I think the reality of the biblical narrative runs, rings true for us, that we live in a world that's broken and that we see the story of God creating a world that was good, but that was broken in the fall and that there's brokenness in ourselves, in our relationship to others, in our relationship to creation. And relationship to God. Um, and that's some of the themes that Anna and Summer and Guy are going to pick up um, this weekend. I had this one particular week in Cairo where I also just felt like I just couldn't cope anymore humanly with what was happening. I think my views of the world just got shaped. And I think that I think it was on a Tuesday we used to have this kind of ecumenical gathering at the Anglican Cathedral. And we were standing out holding hands with our brothers and sisters from different churches, and I was next to a man who was an pre Anglican priest from the Nuba Mountains. So it's a part of North Sudan um, that's Christian and basically gets attacked by its own government to a whole lot of refugees that had come and were part of our Anglican, Anglican family. And the man had come to Cairo with his daughter because his daughter had been shot in the stomach. And so it's like, well, that's quite, you know, like prayed with him um, and kind of entered into his, his reality. Um, the next day I was taking the train home. I think the train in Cairo was always a little bit like literally a rugby scrub. Like you kind of used your shoulder and you like <laughs> got your way onto the train. Um, and as I got off the train, there was just, there was a couple of incidents of violence. And one of them was like a man hitting a woman who was wearing the full um, macabre, like the full covering, just spanking her around the train station and no one really doing anything um, about it. Um, and then the next day I, we had a, ministry to prisoners in Cairo, particularly foreigners that had come. And we just met with 72 Eritrean refugees um, that had come in a group to listen to the bishop priest and preach. And I, I was reading and writing something for the UN about organ harvesting that a lot of um, people had come from Eritrea, they kind of tried to get up through the Sinai, had been taken and had been, their, their organs had been harvested. So I was just right, I was reading about this stuff and, and thinking about these friends that we'd worshipped with. And I think that particular week, I just, I just lost it. I, like, I don't see the hope. I don't, I don't know how to keep going humanly anymore. It doesn't, the world doesn't make sense. Um, I was also writing this week um, a newsletter um, from some friends in India, and I know that in Calcutta is a space that you guys are uh, connecting particularly with. Um, and I was just reading what some of our CNS mission partners were, were writing and thinking, and this is the stuff we need to, to be listening in as a church. Um, so they write, for quite a number of years, my, my husband Dean, and her name's Amanda, and I lived in a slum in Delhi. There are a lot of things that are assaulting to the soul in a slum. The dirt, for example, is simply everywhere. And it's not what I call clean dirt, like when you're camping in the forest. It is a disease-ridden filth, and you will find pools of sewage upon which scanned homes are built, around which mosquitoes swarm. The smells in these places are definitely assaulting, but far more assaulting is seeing a ch small child playing beside his or her home with a stick or a stone in that filth. 
Spend a few days in these places and you learn not only the name of that child, but come to know his or her family quite deeply over many cups of chai. And then what is most assaulting is being acquainted with the deepest griefs through which your friends travel through day in and day out and that constrict around them like heavy iron chains. This has been my work, being alongside. It has almost undone me. Well, in fact, it probably has. Except that despite a burnout of hope and energy, I've been carried. So I think I when I read her testimony this week, I just felt like, yeah, I've been in that place. And that sense of actually, if we really honestly look at the world and see the brokenness, um, it puts our own actions in, in the right context of our work and God's work. So the next heading was the kingdom of God, getting God right. Um, so the question of how do we live in the midst of this deep brokenness and in the midst of our own deep brokenness in our hearts. And I wanted to read from 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Sorry, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortals with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. So what I found phenomenal about this chapter is that the whole chapter is about death and resurrection. So what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? Um, and I think there's a strong emphasis when it talks about the perishable cannot become the imperishable, that it's, it's all God's work. It's not this kind of gradual change um, into the kingdom, but there's a the sense that we will all be changed, that God will change us, it will happen at God's actions. And it's described as a mystery, a promise that sin and death will be swallowed up in victory because of Christ's actions. And so I feel like after that whole passage of, okay, this is all God's work, he's going to do this, he's going to change it all in a twinkling of an eye, it might become like, okay, then you guys could just chill out, God's got it, you don't need to do too much. But actually the last, the last verse says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And so there's that sense, it's pretty mysterious, that the work that we do now will somehow be gathered up in Christ. Christ for whom all things are bound up in that will be gathered up, and all that we do will somehow last into God's future. Um, so in light of this victory, this is how we have the power to stand firm, because of what Christ has done. So even in the midst of the broken, a broken world, we're called to live as new creations. We're given the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of this renewed creation. So in terms of this kind of getting God right, I think in my thesis, I really talked about two things of how do we live in this tension. And one was around anticipation. And really all of our theology, all of our thinking about God 
as constructive in the light of the future, of this kind of hope that we have that's coming, all that we, all the ways that we think about God comes flows out of that. And it's kind of like in a movie, you have like the splashboards. You see the, what the future is going to happen towards which history is unfolding. So we know what the future looks like, and we live into that. Um, and I think that's just such a beautiful thought and such a practical thought. So I think for me, in this area of Western Ethiopia, Gambala, where we were working, a lot, there was a lot of ethnic violence. So basically the ethnic violence that had caused half a million people to be killed in the last 10 years had spilled over and was present in this area of Ethiopia. Um, and the promises of God, of his kingdom, is that one day the swords will be, you know, will be beaten into plowshares. And that one day all tribes and all peoples and all languages will be worshipping before the throne of God. And it was so beautiful as the, as the going around churches with the bishop to, to hear him speak of that and, and see churches doing that when Miller and Opo and Anua ethnic groups worship together as they join together and worship even when people are fighting. It was like living into the sign of the kingdom. It wasn't the kingdom, but it was living in anticipation of that moment where they'll all be worshipping together. And now they're doing that now in refugee camps. I think there's that sense of as we live in that anticipation, really, at the foundation of that is Christ's resurrection. So there's a sense that Christian hope isn't this kind of wishful thinking. It's not something we create. But it's a reality of history. It's based on a reality that we live into. Um, and I thought this is a beautiful quote, that the reason that hope can overstep the bounds of life with a closed wall of suffering, guilt, and death is because these boundaries have already been broken through by Jesus Christ. And so the church is a community of those who on the ground of the resurrection of Christ wait for the kingdom of God and whose life is determined by this expectation. Yes. So the sense of this kind of future picture totally transforms our present. It, it transforms us. It's like an arrow that comes into the future that brings us hope that we live into. And I, I remember when I was writing this thesis, really thinking about the early church. Imagine in the early church when Christ has just been resurrected. So you can't like have this fact and you know it, you knew the people, you know, it wasn't just this kind of thing you read about, it's like you were there and you you heard about it and I think that was the reason why they went so full on for Christ, you know, that they took these risky actions and they looked after people who were sick and they, they risked their own lives because they'd seen the resurrection of Christ and they lived into that and I think there's a challenge for us, what does it mean to really hold on to belief in Christ's resurrection and the boldness that comes with that. I think there's also a sense that the raising of Christ is God's contradiction of the suffering and death. So we see, we live in this world and we can't deny it. We see the power of sin and death, but we also know that God is contradicting it and continues to contradict it. And we live our lives as a contradiction, as a kind of protest against, against this in, in light of Christ. Um, and I, I read them, there's a man called Gustavo Gutierrez who wrote a lot around liberation theology. I mean, it's a great book. I read the whole thing. Um, but he talks about a problem with the theology of hope is it can become just this kind of future thing that doesn't change. And he's writing out of this kind of desperation of seeing his people in Latin America. And he says, actually, living in poverty is like death. We can't just ignore what it means now. Um, so we know that the coming kingdom is a gift from God. It's something that God brings. But this gift is accepted in the negation of injustice. The gift is accepted in the protest against trampled human lives. This gift of the kingdom is accepted in the struggle for peace. So when I was really struggling in Cairo, 
a friend wrote to me, um, just words that really encouraged me at the time. So in this kind of week of seeing all these different friends in prison and just kind of my, I guess I ran out of human hope. He reminded me of God's hope. He said, there is a lot of suffering, but God. That is the promise in scripture, but God. Things were bad, but God. We were dying, but God. We were lost, but God. We were sinners, but God. These words change everything. Please be encouraged that we have a God who can move mountains and change things in the blinking of an eye. Don't lose hope. Realize the love God has for the kingdom around you, the people who are suffering. It's overwhelming. God cries too. And one day all will be renewed. The years the locusts have eaten will be restored. The heart of stone will be replaced with a new heart of flesh. All creation will be restored. So that's kind of one thing around like anticipation of the kingdom, like living into that kingdom hope in the midst of our of suffering now. And I think the other thing is that we don't do this alone, but we participate in the kingdom now. So when we're baptized, Christians in this kind of mysterious way become united with Christ. We become united with the triune God, God and drawn into the life of, of God. So that our participation in the kingdom is not just our kind of saving the world by ourselves, but it's in it flows out of this union with God. Um, and in scripture, there's lots of ways the kingdom of God's talked about and in quite different ways, but really it means the kingdom is really living under the rule or the reign of God. And so what it, as we've baptized Christians, we, we live under God's rule through the power of the Holy Spirit. Each day we seek to lay down our lives in, um, in worship of God and in submission to God. And so the question then becomes, What's God doing? How can we join in what God's doing? Human actions flow out of lives lived in relationship to God and in response to God's saving deeds. And I had this moment in Egypt, actually, about the time my friend took down this Lift Up Your Heads Your Egyptian poster, and I was just feeling, I think, because I, one thing about being a mission partner is you're, you're sent and you learn the language and you just kind of become, you know, the goal is that really you, you seek to dwell with with other people and you seek to walk with them in their journey and I felt like in Egypt I walked with them through this kind of political craziness where the whole country was really turned upside down and um, and I think I was just like God what are you doing here it didn't seem like anything had changed and then I really started just to see these little glimpses of signs of God's kingdom in really unexpected and really quiet ways so for example we had a, a hospital it's been there about 100 years, um, and it's kind of a lot of really kind of Christian doctors who just love Christ, who serve their Muslim friends. It's about 95% Muslim in that area. And I, I really awkwardly spent some time interviewing some of the patients in Arabic for a funding proposal, and they just told me how much they just loved the doctors and how they just felt this love of God um, in this place. And during this time, we just started to see people actually taking scripture and reading it, and we started to see... I think particularly when the, there was a year when the Muslim uh, Brotherhood were in power um, and people really struggled with what the Muslim Brotherhood were doing. So they actually started to ask questions and, and started asking questions about our Christian doctors. So I started just to see um, in my own friendships as well, like all of my close Muslim friends, all of them were asking questions about faith and were asking me. Um, and so I just started to see in that, in that moment of kind of what God's spirit was doing quietly in a way that wasn't through political system necessarily, it might have been as well, but the way I was seeing it was just kind of in gentle ways on the ground through God's spirit. Um, so I think 
Yeah, we get called to participate in God's mission in the world, called to be God's fellow workers and ambassadors for Christ. And so I think that kind of way of, of participating in the life of God, it places our own actions in the right context, that God doesn't actually need anything for us, um, but the world does. And so my friend uh, Amanda, one of our mission partners, when she was talking about this, kind of when she ran out of hope, she went on to say this. She, talk, she says, for me, great has become a place of precious intimacy. There's a verse that simply illustrates what I mean. There's John 11:35. Jesus wept. Here we see our God in tears. Grief is in the very heart of God. This idea is perhaps not a very comfortable thought for you. God in tears, God disturbed, God in grief. We're most used to or maybe prefer to think of our God as strong and in control. And yet in Isaiah, our Lord is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As I've sat in pain and grief and asked God about his grief, I've realized that his is far deeper and greater than mine could ever be due to his great love. I've learned that in fact, he shares our pain more deeply than we realize and he draws close. Not that I'm glorifying grief at all because I firmly believe it was never meant to be. But God doesn't abandon us to this broken world alone. Indeed, he, he sends us the comforter, the spirit of truth. And the truth is that God didn't cause the pain, that he's making all things new. The truth is that he's wiping every tear from our eye and inviting us into a future of no more mourning or dying or pain because he was restoring all things that were broken by what was never meant to be. The Holy Spirit restores our hope as a gift in us to give to the world of pain. He gives us the faith that he is near and does care and has and is responding. So I think the final thing, so it was kind of getting God right. How do we kind of live in anticipation and participate in, in the life of God and our actions flowing out of that? And I think the final one, the final point I wanted to talk about is finding the freedom to do good. And it was around our calling. And I think um, I've been really wrestling with the idea of calling this year. And I think I really like what Scotty was praying around. It's just something that we are kind of pushed into, you know? It's something that we can't resist or that God is just so strongly putting in our lives. And I think when we think about what's our place in the kingdom, it's kind of knowing, finding our vocation, who we called to be by God. And that means knowing our limits, knowing that we can't be everywhere and everything, but we inhabit the portion that God gives to us. Vocations have boundaries. Being called to this means that we're not being called to that. And as a disciple, we're called to live as a follower of Christ. Living out of Christian vocation means cutting off all possibilities for our lives other than that which he calls us. We're stewards of all that God's given us to be poured out for Christ's kingdom through service in a broken and sinful world. And when I was thinking about this kind of finding a freedom to do good, um, I had a friend called Wendy who was a, a doctor working in Gumbella and she was just one of my kind of missionary heroes. And um, she just talked about just the overwhelming amount of need that she saw around her and how could she as a doctor just not treat everyone that she saw and for her she had to kind of let it go and say trust God for each person you know to do what she can to know her limits and to trust God um yeah so and I just wanted to talk briefly about my own sense of calling and I, I guess um yeah I guess just kind of it's kind of what is CMS how did I become a CMS mission partner and it was really interesting for me I, so I graduated from Victoria University I actually ended up working for five years in government at Statistics New Zealand, of all places. Um, 
it went, it kind of felt really cool to work cross-culturally and really wrestle with the question of, okay, God, like, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a teacher, what can I do? I don't really have any skills that are useful. Um, and, but I just felt this kind of strong conviction that God was kind of being pushed by God, really, to, to go to the CMS. And, and I said to them, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere. For a whole lot of circumstances, Egypt happened. And to be honest, it wasn't until I got to Egypt after a few months, I saw that actually, really surprisingly, the project management background that I'd had and the kind of things that I really liked to do, which was kind of organising people, bringing things together for a goal, I actually was like desperately needed in Egypt. And then particularly with this hospital I was talking about, we got this huge grant from USAID to build a new hospital, whereas they didn't really need doctors because they had some great Egyptian doctors. So it's just a sense of... Yeah, like for me, the kind of journey with CMS was a, a laying down and saying to God, here I am, use me. And just seeing kind of God bring me on that journey of um, bringing what I was good at and what I really enjoyed doing and filling a need in the church. Um, to be honest, I, when I first signed up with CMS, I really struggled with the idea of being a missionary. I think it carries a lot of connotations for us, particularly here. Um, but now I'm really proud to be working for the Church Missionary Society. And um, one of the things I love about our kind of calling within the church is that um, I think that the church across the world is the body of Christ, and we each have really different gifts that we bring. So while I was studying at seminary, I was living with an Anglican priest called Grace, and she just had such a confidence in the gospel, and she was always ready to preach to anyone. But I just learned so much from her, from you know this kind of East African revival faith that she was living out of. Um, and I think there's kind of skills and things which is a church in New Zealand that we can share with the world. Um, yeah, so I think of where to finish. I think, so we kind of, probably time's up, right? We got that time? Oh, yeah. yeah that's cool. Um, so I just, I want to just mention really briefly um, just kind of what we do as CMS, just so you guys have a bit of a context of things that you might want to talk, us, talk to us about. Um, so one thing is around mission exposure trips. So we get excited when churches like Brooklyn really want to engage with the world and they're really intentional about um, sending groups out. And I know Guy and Summer have been involved in on your guys' journeys on that. Um, we obviously have Better World, which you guys probably know about, this kind of gap year, um, which I just think for me as a director of CMS, this has been such an awesome thing, seeing the six young women on this journey of discipleship and just seeing their worlds turned upside down. Um, and really rate it, you know, for anyone, um, if you know anyone who's who's doesn't know what to do next year. Um, we also have a program of internships, which is basically for anyone who might feel like maybe this cross-cultural service thing is actually just something that's there, and I just need to explore it a bit more. And so the internships are really going and staying with a long-term mission partner, staying with them for kind of two to six months, and experience what, what what does that look like contributing in a way and we kind of provide some training before and support afterwards um, and there's a kind of long-term service as well so that's if anyone just feels like oh maybe that's just something i'd love to chat about feel free to come and and talk to us um, obviously there's lots of mission agencies out there but the reason that cms is here is that kind of in our history and in our structure we're particularly called to working within the anglican church and working within the anglican communion um, and I guess my final kind of challenge maybe for you guys is I think I think coming back to the Diocese of Wellington a year ago, I just get real excited and I just feel like, man, we're a family on mission. 
and it's great and there's all this great stuff happening um and i think we're so good at the local mission part and i think i think maybe there's a challenge for us to think about how do we connect with the global anglican church and how do we connect with our brothers and sisters around the world um my role in egypt for five years in north africa and ethiopia was building partnerships between kind of churches on the ground and kind of ministries and churches in, in that part of the world and i just saw the way actually these deep partnerships in christ were transformational so i spoke in a church in cambridge in the uk who were partnering with our church in libya um, which was right next to Gaddafi's colors so there was all this stuff happening and this church was just kind of emailed and they prayed and they supported and they visited you know there was just this beautiful partnership in christ um yeah, so I don't, I don't actually know so much about kind of blueprint and how you guys are doing that, kind of connecting to the global church, but I guess my vision in this role as CMS is that I think we have a calling to say, hey, what about the global church? There's other people out there as well as our local mission. How are you guys connecting in? Um, and I guess actually just yesterday I was emailing someone who Bishop Given was, um, he studied at St. John's College. Um, he came, I met him many years ago. Um, I actually live with Bishop Elliot at the moment, and she knows him. He, she knows him really well, and he was just writing to me. So he's now a bishop in a place called the Diocese of Kandoa in Tanzania. It's predominantly Muslim area. I think out of the like 200 churches, there's one person with a theological degree. So it's just kind of this really new, growing church. Um, and he was just writing to me yesterday, and he said, "Our mission work goes very well with the fact that we're growing." But this year we're having a great famine caused a strong drought. In the eastern part of this diocese, we hear very bad news that even some children have lost their lives because of hunger after staying a long time without eating anything. And I'm so sad to learn that our government does not want this fact to be known. In some parishes, the pastors have run away, leaving their parishes, and even lay pastors have left their congregations. These congregations are now led by women. Please pray for us in this difficult moment that we have. I'm planning to visit this eastern zone next week, and I'm going weak because I do not have practical encouragement. But I have to go to provide moral support and solidarity with those people who are suffering from hunger. And for me, there's you know there's so much need in the world, but I think as CMS we have a particular relationship with Bishop Given. We know him, we love him, you know, and that's just one way of just hearing his stories and praying with them and knowing that they pray for us and knowing to be honest that that drought was probably caused by climate change you know like it's just part of that whole kingdom of living you know that whole picture of living in kingdom fullness is really having those relationships and friendships across the world that we we share in each other's sufferings in scripture it says because we're the body of christ we're called to share in each other's suffering so you know our brother's sufferings become our own in christ um now, so just to finish, I just wanted to finish with these words from 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.